morning, everyone. I hope your practice is going well. So, um, what sorts of questions might you have about practice? We'll continue our discussion from last night. So, does anyone have anything? Yes. How to deal with heavy breathing, dog barking, loud uh, air condition, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Somebody breathing heavily, constantly moving, making sound, and I, I feel like uh, I try not to react to it. But it's hard. I feel angry. I feel irritated. Mm-hmm. Uh, ill will arise. So how to deal with it? Okay. Well, so this is very good. You discovered that you can't make yourself not react. No, I can. Right. I can. That's. I just and react to it, and I realize. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to deal with it. Yeah. Yes. You want to deal with it. But it's it's good that uh, you can see that it's not possible to deal with it by keeping yourself from reacting. That just simply won't work. So then you need to look at the reaction. And uh, if you look at the dogs barking, what are the thoughts that come in your mind? Something like that is happening when a dog is barking or somebody's breathing heavily. You need to notice the, not the content of the thoughts. You know, the content of thought might be, uh, doesn't that person, doesn't that, can't that person take their dog inside or doesn't that person know their dog's a problem or something like that. And there's no help in that, but you notice. The, the, the nature of the situation is you want things to be in a particular way. They're not the way you want them to be. And the result is you are unhappy. <laughs> All right? More than unhappy. Why I than feel happy? like uh, angry. Angry. Ill will. Mm-hmm. Arising. Mm-hmm. And so not only do you have a distraction of a dog barking, but now you're angry and unhappy as well. I admit. Mm-hmm. So you can clearly see that that uh, the the reaction of the mind is not helping. It only makes the, the situation worse. So what you need to do in a circumstance like this, well, I, I sometimes you can experience irritation. You can recognize it for what it is and set it aside and just go back to the practice. And after a short period of time, you'll, you'll forget about the thing that's bothering you. But I think you're talking about a situation in which that doesn't work either. That it just it continues to be there. So in that case, the proper thing to do is to meditate on your mind's reaction. Oh, I see. Okay. Meditate on the source of it. For example, uh, 
um, the sound of somebody's breathing is bothering you. Or instead of that, let's take something else. You're meditating and somebody else fell asleep and so they're snoring. (laughs) And you're saying, oh, this is bothering my meditation. Okay. So start off, and, and this is sort of a general rule, always start off with the sensation aspect before you get into the mental aspect. So if this was happening and you, you, you can't just disregard it and go back to the meditation object, the, the annoyance and the anger and the sound keep intruding. First of all, go to the sound of the person's snoring and examine it for what it is and ask yourself, what is it about this that bothers me? What is the nature of the sound? Now, if you just think a quick about it, act this. Um, the snoring doesn't bother that much because I know that person already falling asleep. Mm. Therefore, that person is not responsible for it. Mm-hmm. But heavy breathing, or that I feel that person deliberately doing uh, some kind of meditation mm-hmm. and heavy breathing, bothering other people, mm-hmm. that sort of or moving around, okay. that not caring about other people. That kind of thing made me Okay, mad. that's really that's re- really very good because because which is louder, heavy breathing or snoring? Snoring. Snoring louder. is. But I'm not. But I'm uh, not mad at the snoring. Yeah. I'm mad at people deliberately right. doing mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. not to consider mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so you can see the nature of your own reaction in this. Okay. And that's what you want to become aware of and meditate on. And so you can say, okay, this ill will that I'm feeling, how does it make me feel in my body? Did you do that? Did you look to see what sensations it created in your body? What did it produce? I, I, uh, I become very tight and uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I I'm mad at uh, that person, I'm mad at the situation, and then I'm mad at myself, because mm-hmm. why I react mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all negative. That's all negative, right? And the one thing leads to the other, too. Yes. Right. Yeah. You're mad at the person, and then you're mad at yourself for being mad at the person. Yes. <laughs> then you're mad at the person for making mad at yourself for being mad at the person. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So the best thing to do is just to, to look at all this and, and understand it for what it is, you know. And uh, as far as meditating goes, you can meditate on the anger and the ill will that you're feeling. But to meditate on it, remember what I said last night when I was talking about pain, is you absolutely have to not make the mistake of identifying yourself with it. You've got to set aside all thoughts of, I am angry. This makes me angry. And see, this is anger arising. Become the observer, observing that this anger is arising. Now, why do you suppose the anger arises? Do you have any ideas? The anger... I saw this, well, I 
have to be very honest. Mm -hmm. I feel this is so unfair that mm -hmm. I fly all the way, mm -hmm. come here, wanted to have a good meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's from somebody there. Somebody breathes heavily. Okay. Now, if the anger comes from the breathing, then everybody that hears it should be equally angry, right? Pardon me. I say, if, if the anger came from the heavy breathing, then everybody who hears it should also be angry. Is that not right? Not necessarily. They probably aren't angry, which means the anger doesn't come from the breathing. The anger comes from inside here. Mm-hmm. Right. So, it comes from your... Con you, you have conditioned your own mind through desire and aversion so that you have made yourself susceptible to anger arising. And that's what you that's what you need to change. That's what you want to change. As a matter of fact, all of our unhappiness of and all of our dissatisfaction of every sort comes from the fact that we have we have conditioned our own minds in this sort of way. And how that conditioning occurs, every time we experience anger and we believe in it, when we accept it at its face value, when we say, I am angry and I am angry because this person did that, we've conditioned ourselves so that in the future we will become angry and we will become angry in reaction to things that we perceive that somebody else's is that what somebody else does is the cause of the anger. And so we will perpetuate this. And the more often you do this, the more easily you'll become angry. Okay. Uh, yes? Yeah, but I just continue her question. Uh, but if you think, you know, I am angry right now, I'm mad, um, this is not... This is not right, you know. Maybe other people are not, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. they are not angry. And then you put a label, you, you label this as this is not right. And I, I thought that uh, meditation is supposed to be non judgmental. Mm -hmm. And uh, how can you balance this? Uh? Mm -hmm. Yes, you want uh, Yes, you want to be non judgmental, but you find yourself. Buried in this pile of judgmentalness. <laughs> so, it's an opportunity to begin to find your way out of that. And the first thing is to see things in a more realistic way, which is the anger doesn't come from its apparent cause, because otherwise everyone would be angry in the same way, and they're not. The anger is coming from your mind. And it is not that you are angry, it's that anger is arising. A mental state of anger is arising from your mind, because your mind is conditioned in such a way that it's predisposed to produce those feelings of anger. And that's what you want to examine. You want to examine the nature of anger, examine how it feels. Anger makes you feel uncomfortable in your body. Anger produces mental unpleasantness. 
anger produces many thoughts that distract you. And as a matter of fact, you're not really distracted by the person's breathing. You're distracted by your own thoughts and your own emotions. And, and so that you can, you can see clearly that uh, these, this, this mental reaction, these emotions, they do not benefit you. They don't serve you. They don't contribute to your well-being and happiness, and they definitely are not contributing towards your uh, awakening and enlightenment. And uh, although in meditation, while meditating, you may not do or say things that hurt other people, you can also keep in mind, though, that the same anger in other circumstances often leads you to do and say things that uh, cause suffering to other people. So you can recognize by meditating on the anger that arises, you can see the true nature of anger, that it is not you, it is a conditioned result that arises, and then uh, and that it's something that is, you know, we're not going, in terms of judgment, we're, it's not that we're judging the person or judging ourselves or even really judging anger because anger is just what it is. Just observe. But you observe it and you observe its effects. So you can come to the very correct conclusion that anger is something that is not beneficial, that you would do better to to, uh, not have and experience the anger. So that the, to meditate on the anger in that way, that is a, a very good and beneficial way to initially approach the anger. So that you're, you're seeing things as they really are. Now, the next thing that you might do is to see if you can eliminate from your mind stream in the present moment these negative mental states. The most important thing, though, is you don't want to create a a future karma of becoming easily angry. And if you can recognize, if, if you refuse to identify with the anger, and if you can recognize the anger as a mental state that's arising out of causes, then that will be less likely to to happen. And if you can uh, recognize that to degree to the degree that you allow the anger to persist, uh, to that degree you, uh, you will have some residual inclination to anger in the future. So from that point of view, you may extend your meditation in the form of loving kindness to see if you can remove the anger. Now, the answer is to find a way to to understand, to forgive, and to accept so that you can let go of. So, can you see a way to do that in terms of what you are experiencing? You could have a different kind of thought about that person. And through understanding and 
if there is enough understanding, there can be forgiveness. If there's enough forgiveness, there can be acceptance. And then if there is acceptance, there's compassion towards the person. If they are breathing in that way, perhaps they're not having a good meditation. And perhaps they didn't fly as far as you did. But who knows what the circumstances are for them. But it's it's unfortunate that they're perhaps not having the best meditation that they can. If you succeed in this, you might come to the point where you can accept and you can let go of it. Because after all, if a bird were calling, you would notice it and you would go back to your practice without being disturbed. And you said yourself that if somebody were soaring, you would be able to let go of it. So that's, that's where you're trying to get to, is that place where you can just let go. And if you meditate, if you have this kind of experience, and you will all have these kinds of experiences at some time or another, if you can use them in this way, there's no such thing as a bad meditation, really. There's only the times that you forget to do the practice, or you forget, fail to do the practice, or you don't understand how to do the practice properly. But if you spent your whole period of sitting doing this meditation uh, on the nature of, of, of the anger and dealing with the anger, that would have been a very, very good meditation, very, very beneficial to you. I'm sorry. Yes. I, I have some follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Um, so the meditation you were talking about sounds like uh, uh, when we're observing what's going on in our mind and in our body, mm-hmm. we're collecting data and we're trying to um, contemplate, you know, based on the, da- that the, the data we gather, we're contemplating the cause and effect of what's, mm-hmm. what's, what's, uh, what's causing what result. Yeah. And, uh, and later on you were talking about... Um, uh, practicing uh, loving kindness, understanding, compassion. So those are uh, skillful ways uh, to create, to to do, to have mental fabrication. And and for an enlightened person, is this fabrication even required? Is because the, the an enlightened person probably will be free of anger, craving, and delusion. So, That's right. So this kind of trying to have a skillful mental fabrication probably wouldn't even be necessary. It'll be so, uh, it'll be a part of uh, a enlightened person's life that, you know, this person's always free of those things. Yes, they've already done this kind of work before. But, but it's like a stepping stone. The it's like, it's like a stepping stone, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so meditation could, could be just very skillful contemplation of the data as we call that. Meditation could be skillful contemplation of the, or skillful application, application. Yeah, of the of the information that you have collected. Yeah. And you know, and uh, I I said that it would be a good meditation even if you spent the whole time dealing with this, but of course too, uh, it's possible that if you approach it in this way within five minutes. You have you no longer experience the disturbance of mind, and then you disregard whatever it was, and then you proceed to practice in a normal way throughout that. So 
first of all, I want to use the word contemplation, and what I've described involves a certain amount of, of discursive thought and deliberately altering the uh, uh, the mental state that's being generated. So I just want to make it clear that I'm not suggesting that uh, that this replace the regular meditation practice, but that you use it as a skillful way of overcoming the problem and doing some very important work on your own mind in the process for the sake of being able to come back and continue the practice in the normal way. So yes, you're, you're contemplating the things that you have already learned and understand. Uh, and you are applying those things. Uh, and uh, there's two things here. One is that so long as you don't allow yourself to become caught up in the thoughts associated with the mental state and the distraction, uh, and you're continuing to intentionally control uh where your what your attention is placed on, and as long as you're you're working towards the resolution of the distraction, so you can go back to the practice. You haven't really interrupted the meditation practice. You've modified it to suit the circumstances of the moment, <coughs> but you're still you're still meditating. You haven't. Okay. I haven't. Quick follow-up mm-hmm. question. Sorry about that. Um, it, it seems like uh, anger, craving, and delusion is a deep. It's the it's the, the the root of the problem. So shouldn't I, as a practitioner, focus my energy on contemplating that versus trying to say develop uh, compassion, more compassion for, because you know time is limited. So if I want to apply my effort, I want to apply it in a way that's going to be most most, uh, most effective, and and. And since anger, uh, craving, and delusion is the root of the problem, shouldn't I you know, spend more time contemplating that versus trying to have this uh, uh, meta meditation? Well, they're not they're not disconnected from each other at all. And if you look at this situation, we start with anger and delusion, and we wouldn't have they don't come separately. The anger and the delusion come together. And the way that we deal with the anger is by overcoming the delusion that uh, is that it's based in. Mm. Okay. Okay. I see. So we I see. are we are dealing with those things. I see. Okay. But <clears throat> but being the way we are and as we are, it's not as though. Uh, you know, it, it depends on on where you are in your spiritual practice. If you're that far away from being uh, an enlightened being, and you find yourself becoming angry, perhaps all you need to do is, in a single moment, call to mind uh, what you know, recognize what's happening, and let go of it, and that's the end of it. But but if you're not at that point, then uh, you still have this residue of uh, of emotion and anger, that this is a karmic result. It's there for a reason. It's not, it's not that it's your fault because you became angry, so you should just stop. 
This is, this is part of what we're saying. That anger is a mental state. It's a result. It's a result of past causes and conditions. It has to be there. Just as in, in all causal circumstances, if the cause is present, the result has to be there. And the cause is not the distraction. The cause is the previous conditioning. Because you have the previous conditioning in your mind stream, because you have the karma to experience anger, the anger is going to be there. Okay, so you have to accept that. It's going to be there. But it doesn't have to remain. And this is where the practice of uh, uh, understanding, loving kindness and compassion comes in is uh, a way to uh, overcome that and deal with that. There's one of the sutras, which perhaps I'll, I'll bring uh, and, and read to you in one of these talks, where the Buddha is talking about the way that he trained himself. He says, as a bodhisattva, he examined his mind and his intentions, and he saw that he had two kinds of intentions that arose those that arose out of uh, uh, greed, those that arose out of uh, uh, anger, and those that arose out of cruelty. And he recognized that those intentions did not serve him, that they were not beneficial to him, uh, nor were they beneficial to others, and that they stood in the way of and prevented his own attainment of liberation. And he saw that the other kind of intentions that he had were those that were based in the opposite of greed, were based in generosity. And those that, uh, rather than being based in anger, were based in compassion. And those that, rather than being based in cruelty, were based in loving kindness. And he saw that these were conducive to his enlightenment and liberation, were beneficial to him and were beneficial to others. And so he said, from that time, he set out to practice mindfulness. And when he saw that intentions of the unwholesome sort were present, to, uh, to work to overcome them. And then having overcome them, to replace them with the wholesome intentions or when he found that wholesome intentions were present, to, to sustain them and prevent their passing away. And so this is exactly what we're talking about doing here. In this particular example, it's in dealing with a problem that comes up in meditation. But you see, this applies equally well to every situation and circumstance that you find yourself in in your life. That and, and, and as I discussed it here, you have to first of all recognize that these things exist in your mind stream because of causes and conditions. Therefore, they have the right to be there in the present. And therefore, do not judge yourself for, for the fact that they're present. Because... They are the result of past causes and conditions. They're karmic results. Perhaps not even of this lifetime, or at least not entirely of this lifetime. Doesn't matter. In the present moment, 
they have the right to be there because their causes are in the past and you cannot change the past. So there's no point in moving into a further mental state of judging yourself or of judging in, in, uh, in a critical and, and uh, unhelpful way the very existence of these emotional states. The first step is to accept that they are what they are. But not that you are them or they are you or that you uh, in, in the present moment are responsible for their existence. What you are responsible for is what you do with them. Whether you reinforce them or whether you do your best to let them go. Whether you allow them to continue or whether you do take, take the steps that you can to set them aside and replace them with their opposites. And if you adopt this as a practice, it will lead you to enlightenment as quickly as any other practice that you can do. Um, Please help me to um, feedback what I also, just like you say that, and I uh, have the other, not the other, just pretty much uh, add, you know, something. When the things happen, I kind of observe, you know, I, I should say, uh, I, I see the observing that how, what degree I want to escape from that, that kind of mm-hmm. unpleasant environment mm-hmm. and how much I try to against and push that away from the mm-hmm. world I want to experience. You know, once I observe that and I see how the emotion, how the mind react for, for, for the, the, the situation that happened. And so I pay more attention for that, how much degree, you know, and I realize that through the several observation, and I realize this is the pattern, usually mm-hmm. how I want to escape. And escape maybe through the blaming or through the, you know, forget I'm leaving or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, those kind of things. Then once I be able observe further, sounds for me is one is the realization come and the second is uh, you know that that uh, unpleasant is 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 become the beneficial for me to realize my own reaction mm-hmm. my own thing and that is helping uh, leading me toward the the um, practice for that so I add that part and I need I would like your feedback. Is that is the uh, beneficial way to doing that? Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it is. It's, it's very important. And, and you you say that uh, when you realize that you're trying to escape from these unpleasant mm-hmm. uh, experiences, and that you see that is one of the mistakes that we naturally tend to do mm-hmm. is we want to avoid. We want to suppress, we want to deny. Um, and, and there's many ways we do it. If we find ourselves, uh, if, if we get, if we judge ourselves and become angry at ourselves because of our reactions, this gives us even more motivation to blame 
someone else so that we don't have to blame ourselves. It's one of the ways, one of the most unwholesome ways that we escape, uh, try to escape from the experience. But the other thing is to try to repress it. And it doesn't work to just deny it and repress it. We can run away from it, we can turn away from it, we can avoid it. But you see, in terms of, if you think of it in terms of karma, if, if you deny it and turn away from it, you're still, in a way, reinforcing it. You're accepting it as real, and you're identifying with it. Rather than examining it with mindfulness and allowing the power of your mindful awareness to recognize its true nature. Because, uh, you know, in terms of, of karma, there is always this element of ignorance and delusion that contributes to the other two negative results, the other two uh, negative roots of uh, desire and aversion. And the antidote to ignorance is mindful awareness. And so that's the most important medicine to apply. Uh, just hide, hiding from, escaping from, denying uh, those negative karmic results that we experience is not going to help. We need to apply the medicine of mindful awareness to it. Otherwise, it's like covering up a symptom and the disease continues, which is exactly what happens. If, if, you, uh, if, you, the, if, if you feel anger and then deny it or undertake some other activity to hide the anger from yourself, it still leaves its karmic imprint and it still leaves the same predisposition to anger again in the future. So you're doing exactly the right thing. So that is more uh, can go to the root and 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 and, and uh, uh, slice down those kind of reaction in the in, in the future, right? Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. And and that's um, often. Uh, I mean, there's there's a very large range of negative mental states that a human mind is capable of. But to the degree that which you can take any one of those and see where its roots are in some combination of, of uh, desire, aversion, and ignorance, you know, that's where your understanding will be most effective. I mean, you don't necessarily absolutely have to do that uh, every time. If you recognize it's a negative mental state, you can deal with it. But if you can see the role that's played by desire, aversion, and delusion, which are the roots, then to that degree, when you've dealt with it, you've also dealt with it at the root level, not just at the, at the branch level. Um, the, the Buddha uh, taught uh, Anapanasati. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, read, I read a sutra. Uh, Buddha said that in the, begin, in the beginning, the practitioner should find a very quiet place mm-hmm. away from the crowd and the noise mm-hmm. and start to do his practice. Yes. And also, uh, my point is, what if I have a choice? Uh, i give you an example. Uh, if in the meditation hall, somebody is making 
uh, noisy movement and uh, heavy breathing, mm -hmm. and I feel like it's disturbing me. And since I'm a beginner, uh, it's very hard for me to do the kind of practice mm -hmm. you just taught me, mm -hmm. but it's easier. I leave the hall mm -hmm. to do outside meditation, to sit in a corner that uh, nobody's there, so I can easily practice to build up my energy, my strength, or to build up my, you know, increase the, um, uh, increase the energy to, mm -hmm. to solve that. What if uh, in a situation that I have a choice, like uh, if I walk on the street, I'm about to step at a door pool. I mean, I have a choice not to. Mm -hmm. I can, I can just you know go mm -hmm. around that door pool. I don't have to step at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want you to uh, give some mm -hmm. comment on that and advice. Yes. Well, this is this is very good, and I'm going to relate it to some other things as well. Uh, first of all, the simple answer is that you do your absolute best to deal with the situation in the meditation hall. And if you reach the point where you realize that uh, you've done all you can and that perhaps further, uh, further perseverance in the meditation hall isn't necessarily going to be productive, it is a good, that is the time to go and practice somewhere else. Okay? But you absolutely do your best first. Mm -hmm. It's like when I was talking about dealing with pain last night. Pain is something that you have to deal with in meditation. And it's wonderful that we have pain. It's important to learn to learn to deal with pain because of all the things you learn from dealing with pain. And there is a stage in meditation that you reach where you no longer have pain. And so, knowing that, I promise you, someday you will never have pain in meditation again. Okay? So, I tell you that because I want you to take advantage of every opportunity that pain arises before then so that you can learn what pain needs to teach you. Okay? Now, when we're talking about dealing with pain, you have a pain, and of course, the first thing that you would want to do, the easiest thing to do, is you will move. And the pain will be relieved. Although, most of you have already discovered, you move, and then a few minutes later, the pain's back again, or else there's a new pain. And then you have to move again. And then even less time, there's a new pain, and you move again. And even less time than that, until after a while, you just can't sit still, no matter what. Have you been through this? Yeah, yes. you come to that point, you, you were doing fine, and then you said, well, I'll just move. And then a little while later, there is just no way that you can sit that is comfortable for more than a short period of time. Right? So, although when there's a pain, you always can move, that's always one way of dealing with the pain. First, before you move, work with the pain as much as you can. Go as far as you can. And then when you reach that point that you recognize that you can't continue this way and that 
even knowing that moving will only be a temporary solution, you're going to move anywhere. Then you do it very deliberately and very consciously in the same way, too. If you're dealing with this other kind of problem, you have the option to get up and to leave the meditation hall and to go practice somewhere else. And you can do that, and that's a good thing to do. But don't do it before you have to. Do your best to deal with it in the situation. Um, I'm trace back to something you said earlier. You said that uh, the, the thoughts of anger and, um, and craving is a result of the past karma, and it has a rightful place to be there. And does that mean um, somebody who is fully enlightened is still capable of anger and craving? No. To be enlightened means that you have overcome those those roots that you uh, the roots of uh, uh, desire and aversion, which are craving and ignorance. Division. But those are the result of past karma. And the Buddha may be enlightened right now, but he does have a history, mm-hmm. just like all of us. Um, but this is... Uh, and, and he will still experience karmic consequences of a certain kind, but not of this particular kind. And how so? Because he, precisely because what it means to be a Buddha is to have uh, destroyed the roots of, of craving and ignorance. But that would defeat the the um, the, the, the explanation you just said that you know the thought that we have, the craving, the anger is is due to past karma, and 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 every every sentient being, every being has a, has a history and. And therefore, if that theory is right, then the Buddha should should still have craving and anger. <laughs> 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 okay, really what the question is, is in what in what sense is something like anger a karmic result? Okay. Um, karma is it, it's, it's basically the word means action and it's basically referring to cause and effect everything is a result of, of, of causes and, and everything will produce effects because absolutely everything is interconnected and, and interrelated in this way so that's what karma is referring to now within within that very large context of every kind of cause and effect there is uh, one particular aspect of karma which is the way that we condition our mind stream to respond or the way we condition our mind to uh, respond to these root phenomena that are available, or are, are, are that uh, are available, not the right word, that are always present. 
um, you experience, well, as a human being, for that matter, a sentient being, you will respond to pleasure with desire and you'll respond to pain with aversion. And a result of, as a result of the desire and the aversion, you will act. The very first stage in the action is that you make real in your own mind the sense of a self, I am I, and an object, this is the source of my pain and pleasure. Then, having created in your mind this idea of self and this idea of object that is the cause of pain or pleasure, then comes the action which might be no more complex than reaching towards that which is pleasurable or pushing away that which is painful, but it's an action. The karmic consequence is that every time you act in this way, you predispose yourself in the future to do the same thing, that uh, pleasure arises and I make myself into a craving being and I make the perceived cause of my pleasure into a uh, craved object. And it can become stronger and stronger. And this is not mysterious doctrine, this is what you know from your own experience. Is that not what happens? Mm -hmm. You see something, uh, you see it as desirable, and it grows, and you go from being a person who mildly appreciates and desires a somewhat interesting and attractive object to a being who is filled with craving, lust, desire, and has to have, is obsessed with that object that seems so much, so hugely desirable and important. You, in a sing, in the course of a single day, you can, uh, you can bring about a powerful karmic consequence that uh, you allow yourself to become irritated and annoyed at some little thing and then something else happens and you become angry and you say, oh, I'm in a bad mood and, you, and so now you've created yourself as a person that is in a bad mood and predisposed to experience aversion and anger. Right? And then uh, as you go on in your day, there may be all sorts of pleasant things around but you won't even notice them but you'll certainly notice all of those annoying anger producing things you know you'll you'll drive down the street and you won't notice the beautiful trees but uh, you'll certainly notice the uh, obnoxious driver who is not paying attention that you're trying to change lanes and, and so we condition our, our minds through every action that we do conditions our minds. Now the difference in, in this whole sequence 
You see, we have we come into the world as sentient beings who are programmed to experience pleasure and pain and to react with desire and aversion. That's craving. Uh, and as long as all of those pieces of the chain are present, it just keeps on reinforcing itself. The way that a Buddha is different is the Buddha has cut out the link called craving. That's not there anymore. So, the Buddha experiences the pain or the pleasure, but it stops right there. So it's kind of like, you know, the critical elements of the fire, you remove one, so it's impossible to have a fire. Absolutely. Even, even yeah. if there's fuel there, even if there's oxygen there, if you don't have a spark, you cannot ignite. Very good example. Yes, Ex- very good. Thank you. That's exactly right. If you, uh, even though the other elements are still there, if you, if you remove one, key element, then you'll change what the result is. So a Buddha who is free from craving will still experience pleasure and pain, but needn't enter into mental states of lust and anger uh, and, and things like that as a result of it. Okay? But I have an argument here. Okay. If um, this kind of a dependency, if, like if you cook a you boil an egg. Mm-hmm. After certain minutes, even you turn off the stove, uh, the egg will cook mm-hmm. by itself. Even you stop the, you know, you turn off the stove, you know. I mean, I'm a housewife. I have this uh, experience that like, mm-hmm. like uh, when I put, a, when I try to boil an egg, mm-hmm. even I change my mind. Mm-hmm. But after certain time, you just have to be cooked, even you stop everything. That's right. The egg, in the end, is cooked. Yeah. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Ian, what's that? Well, not necessarily. If you take the egg out of the water, then... Still, because, I mean, after certain certain thing happen, even you stop one element or something, mm-hmm. the result still going mm-hmm. to be happening. Well, and you see, the description of enlightenment is that it involves four distinct stages of enlightenment. And that is only in the final stage of the Arhat, the Buddha, that there is the, the complete elimination of all of these. In other words, yes, the egg will continue to cook even though you've turned off the fire. So Mm -hmm. somebody who's reached the first stage of enlightenment still experiences desire and still experiences Ah. aversion, but not to the same degree. But the most important thing is they don't become captured by it and, you know, they recognize it. They, they, They remember and they bring a halt to it. And that's why in these four stages there, there is a progressive attenuation mm-hmm. of craving, of desire and aversion. Uh, and just as somebody suggested, yes, you could, you could take the egg out of the hot water and put it in cold water. Right? <laughs> and in the same way, you know, uh, even though... Uh, even though there are four stages of enlightenment, 
you could speed up the process. You don't have to draw it out as long as possible. You don't have to leave the egg in the hot water. I like that. Okay? (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Do I have time for one more question? Yes, I believe so. Okay. My question is regarding the... Oh, okay. It's about the meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Is there a particular limit for like uh, 15 minutes at least for the meditation? I mean, the, the, the time frame. The reason I ask because uh, when uh, Deborah mentioned about, you know, you respond to the certain certain situation, and then if you be mindful, and, uh, um, you know, uh, and then actually I, I would think that is in meditation mood at least, because you have attention and you, you observe yourself at that moment. You know you have certain pattern, and you want to change that pattern. So, that is already, I mean, for me, that is kind of like in meditation mm-hmm. mood. I don't know the, the, the state. But uh, is there any certain type, just when we practice meditation, people normally start 15, at least 15 minutes. Or So how can we um, define the meditation? I mean, I know that's like a, a skilled mental training, but mm-hmm. have to be certain type, right? You are, are, are you thinking in terms of somebody that's beginning to meditate and a minimum yeah. amount of time? General meditation definition, like, you know, we have eating meditation, walking meditation, but if we just start three minutes, can we call that meditation? And then we finish. Uh, you, could, you could call three minutes or five minutes a meditation if... Okay. During that three minutes or five minutes, the, the criteria is met that you are uh, deliberately or intentionally uh, holding the, uh, the attention on a particular object, and if the attention moves, you, you bring it back. As a matter of fact, I would encourage that everyone do that as much as possible. If you find yourself... Uh, sitting at a traffic light in your car, you can meditate for 30 seconds. And if you find yourself waiting in a checkout line in the store, you can meditate for two minutes. You know, or if you find yourself, uh, uh, if you work in an office and you find yourself waiting for the photocopier to be free, you can meditate for two minutes or five minutes or however long. In terms, and, and all of these will contribute, they're always helpful. As a matter of fact, we want to come to the place where, as much as possible, we're mindful all of the time. We have that, that meditative state of, uh, of focused, alert awareness uh, available to us all the time. So that's always beneficial. So actually being mindful is another word of... Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Being mindful is another word that... Uh, you know, obviously, waiting at a traffic light or in certain circumstances is a different degree of concentration than if you're you're sitting in a quiet room uh, for an hour. You know, so but nevertheless, it's of the same quality of mindful, alert, focused awareness. The other thing, though, is in terms of effectiveness. If you to be uh, to be effective in training the mind, 
you need longer periods. And somebody who, say, only meditated, who never meditated more than 15 minutes at a time, their progress would be very, very slow if, if they were able to progress at all. Because, and, and this is worth keeping in mind, in your practice, it's the point at which the, uh, it's the point at which the practice takes more effort and more diligence that you're producing the greatest benefit of the training. You know? And so if you get used to meditating for half an hour, then to extend it to 45 minutes, it's that extra 15 minutes that's going to start giving you the, the greatest new training benefit. And when you become used to that, if you extend it to an hour, then it's that uh, last 15 minutes. It's pushing yourself beyond what you've already gotten used to. So. have just a few minutes left. Any more meditation questions? Yes? Uh, let's maybe we can get you both in. Let's try. <laughs> well, just to follow up with what you just said, um, people like us, we're lay people. We have to work, we have to take care of chores. Um, so, I mean, compared to, say, you know, a monk mm-hmm. who devotes all his or her, you know, time to meditate, so if our time is limited in comparison, does that mean we won't be able to achieve the result? that we want eventually, so we're always going to be somewhat behind, so when is enlightenment going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> they really want to gain enlightenment. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, it, no, it doesn't mean that, and there's not, there's, there's not, to my knowledge, some minimum amount of time that a person has to meditate to become enlightened. But it's important that especially as a lay person, that you do as much as you can and that you take every opportunity. And uh, I think a lay person can probably become enlightened much more quickly than a monk who feels like, well, I've got my whole life to do this in and I can meditate for five hours a day. Online, there's no excuses. <laughs> and then, uh, if, you, if you feel that way and think that way, you know, I've got all this time, and you sit down and meditate, and you don't really feel like an urge to daydream. You sit and daydream. Whereas, you know, if you feel like I don't have very much time to do this, so I'm going to take the best advantage of the time that I do have, <laughs> then uh, you probably get much better results that way. You'll be more diligent. So, and um, any anyone can become enlightened at any moment. Enlightenment is an accident. Spiritual practice makes us accident prone. <laughs> okay? So, as a layperson or as a monastic, either one, you just do everything you can to create the conditions, you know, so that it really can happen. Sorry, Peggy. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. These people really want to gain enlightenment. I yeah. got it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well. It's uh, it's time for us to have our lunch. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You have a wonderful afternoon practicing. I will say, please, noble silence. Please don't, please don't talk. The sound of another human voice is quite disturbing. 
and to speak yourself is to really disturb this piece of your own mind. 